Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the FT's weekly politics podcast with me, Miranda Green. I'm joined this week by George Parker, our political editor, Robert Shrimsley, political commentator, Jonathan Derbyshire, the executive opinion editor, and Sunda Katwala of British Future. Our themes are joy and pain, in the form of football's ability this summer to recast a happier version of Englishness. And yes, Brexit. We will reward steadfast listeners with joy a little bit later. But first, for the pain, I'm joined by Robert and George. As we speak, the Cabinet is gathered at Chequers, the Prime Minister's weekend residence in Buckinghamshire, for what may be the least fun day out in British political history. A crunch meeting to thrash out the UK government's common position on what we want out of Brexit. We're discussing this on Friday while they're still closeted in there, phones confiscated and with a warning that anyone who resigns will not have a ministerial card to get them home again. George, Isn't the Prime Minister actually trying to find a solution to a problem which has no solution? Because at some point, either the Brexiters or the Remainers are going to have to walk because there isn't a deal that satisfies everyone. Yeah, I mean, that's the calculation she's made all along, that at the end of this process, she has to present a deal which the whole Conservative Party can vote for. She's making the correct assumption, in my view, that the Labour Party will vote against the deal, whatever it is, and so will the other opposition parties. Therefore, she needs to have a deal which Jacob Rees-Mogg will walk through the division lobbies alongside Dominic Grieve. And as you say, that means a deal that nobody is going to be happy with. Now, at the end of the process, of course, you end up with a situation where people start to question, what was the point of Brexit? You know, that's the problem. You end up making so many compromises on Brexit from a Brexiters' point of view, they start to wonder, well, was it actually really worth it? And that's the kind of discussion that people will be having at Chequers. You know, is this actually really Brexit? The fact is we've gone so far down the road. The will of the people has been expressed. It's very hard to see how you can turn back other than to keep pursuing this increasingly fudgy, mudgy compromise, which I think is what they're trying to thrash out at Chequers. Can the fudge essentially be of a consistency (laughs) that it continues to bind people in? Because the one thing that May has been amazing at is keeping going for another fortnight and then keeping going for another fortnight and just compromising enough to keep everyone on board. But is this the moment when people start to fall off at one side or the other? I think you have to look at the state of mind of the Conservative Party at Westminster. The vast majority of them, the silent majority, as I was speaking to one minister this morning, was saying, look, most people realise this is incredibly difficult. They're behind Theresa May. They wanted to do it. They don't want to wreck the economy. They accept Brexit has to be done and we are behind her. So I think the bulk of the party accepts that this is going to be messy, but they've got to do it. The question, your question really is, are the Brexiteers at this point going to walk out? That's a question which going into Chequers, Theresa May doesn't know the answer to. Obviously, people are speculating that David Davis and Boris Johnson are the two who might. But the other people around the cabinet table, people like Esther McVeigh, Penny Mordaunt, they've just been given cabinet jobs. Do they really want to resign them? Liam Fox, Trade Secretary, who's had about nine or ten lives as a minister, delighted he's still in the cabinet. Looking around the table, the question is, is someone like Boris Johnson going to walk out? And frankly, if he did on his own, I think number 10 is quite prepared for that and in some ways would even welcome it. 
So, Robert, you wrote this week about how, frankly, daft it would be for the Conservative Party to ditch Mrs May at this point or to take actions that would result in a leadership challenge to her. I completely agreed with what you wrote, but it did occur to me that daftness is in fashion at the moment. Yeah, of course, I said that on Monday. I've completely changed my mind by Friday. No, um, I, I <laughs> There's a lot the, of that about as the well. The fundamental point... Um, and what I wrote was not a, an extravagant defence of Theresa May's premiership, but an attempt to remind people of the actual fundamentals of this government, which is that Theresa May took over with no money, essentially no majority, and the biggest political problem of modern times. She then held an election and made that limited majority into a no majority at all. And the problem is that anybody who replaces her is going to come in with no money, no majority, and the biggest political problem of modern times. It's something that those of us who spend a lot of time thinking about politics, we tend to overstate the importance of the personal, of the individual leader, someone to about strong leaders. But the truth is they're only ever as strong as the fundamentals. And the fundamentals are that she hasn't got a majority in Parliament. And if they were to replace her and bring in somebody else, that would be just as true for them, except they would just have ditched a leader. So my point really was that you can talk about dumping Theresa May, but whoever takes over is going to have to find a position on Brexit in a deeply divided party, in a parliament quite possibly with no majority for any single position. And that's even before you bothered to talk to the Europeans. So essentially, this question that I was raising with George, that Brexit is a problem with no solution if you've got to keep everybody on board for it, you're saying that no other potential Tory leader has the answer either. Because surely if, you know, Boris or David Davis were to walk out on their own altogether, they don't have a solution to this problem either. Well, they have a solution, but it's not not one, not one that could you know, get through. There's a solution, which is to say, the hell with this. We're running at the cliff edge. We're going for hard Brexit. It's a perfectly clear solution. And Europe, you can either blink or we're off. Rather like that film scene, I can't which one it is, where the bank robber puts a gun to his own head and says, come any closer and I'll shoot. That is a position. I don't think there's a majority for that in Parliament. I think enough Conservatives would defect against that and vote against it that it's not doable. So in the end, you have a choice between a Prime Minister who recognises the need to compromise to save the economy and is prepared to try and do it, or a Brexiter who doesn't recognise the need to compromise to save the economy but will in the end have to do it anyway. There is no way past this one. The only way past it, in my opinion, and there's a cliche that's been used a lot recently, which is about kicking the can down the road. And people keep saying, well, you can't keep kicking the can down the road forever. As someone who, as a child, did kick a can <laughs> down a road, I remember that the point was never to pick it up. The point was to keep kicking it. Actually, you can kick the can for a very, very, very long time if you're clever about it. And my instinct tells me that actually these Brexit negotiations are going to go on for many, many years to come. We will get through to the transition period. Some of the emotion will go out of it. Then we'll have more negotiations. Then we'll think about the next thing. This can could be moving for a while yet. But you have to keep very focused on what does Britain have to negotiate with Brussels before it leaves? Has to basically, most of it's done, we have to negotiate the so-called Irish backstop, the solution to the Irish border. That requires the ministers at Chequers to make a decision about customs and a decision about the single market for goods and agriculture, which they seem to be in the process of doing. It may not, almost certainly won't be enough for Brussels, but nevertheless, it's, a, it's an explanation for that. The rest of it, as Robert was suggesting, all the detail of a customs arrangement, all the other stuff about services and exactly the terms on which we have a goods deal, free movement, all of that, you can kick down the road until after we leave in March 2019. And that's exactly what Theresa May is going to do. And George, there's been a lot of talk about Michael Gove as the sort of key figure in the middle of this. And that if Gove were to sort of give up on Mrs May, she would be in serious, serious trouble. But that while he's in there telling people, if we can just get over the line, if we can just mm. get to the end of next March, Brexit will be done. And then there's all to play for, for making Brexit what we want after the effect. Do you think that that's realistic or do you think that's a tale they're telling themselves? 
I think it's a statement of fact to a certain extent that the negotiation will happen after March 2019, but there's a lot of self-serving rhetoric in Michael Gove's position. Michael Gove, having been associated with the Leave campaign, running the Leave campaign, is now trying to present himself as a conciliatory compromise candidate and the next Tory leader who can heal the wounds of the party. And so I think he takes the view, yes, you know, get Brexit over the line, then we can try and improve it later. By improve, he means something very specific that we might see as not as important. Yes, and he he clings to this idea that once we're out, that suddenly a hard Brexit majority will suddenly materialise in the House of Commons and that C. Michael Gove will be able to deliver it. It's a complete figment of Michael Gove's imagination, but it's a way in which he can justify to himself and to some in the party the compromises that are needed now to get Brexit over the line. And do you think, Robert, I mean, knowing the Conservative Party as you do, that that kind of, as it were, middle way, the Govian middle way, get Brexit done and then carry on fighting for the hard Brexit vision afterwards, will that have a willing audience on the Tory backbenches? Yeah, I think it actually completely works as a concept for keeping the show on the road. We make the compromise we have to make now, but don't worry, we're going to keep at it. We're going to keep. And to be fair to them, you know, that is what the Brexiters in the Conservative Party have done for 25 years. They have been fighting, been nudging, notching up most of their victories little by little. So actually, it's a completely viable solution for the Conservative Party. For the country, that's a different question. But it's also quite a good solution for Mrs May because it enables her to carry on, as you've said, kicking the can down the road until potentially the next election because there have been stories saying that she, she actually wants to fight the next general election. It seems extraordinary. I've talked to enough people close to her to think that she certainly considers this a realistic option. I've not talked to that many people in the Parliamentary Conservative Party who like the idea of going to the next election with her leading the campaign. But you know, who the hell knows? She retains a certain popularity in the polls more than any of the alternatives. But the fundamental truth is the nature of the Brexit is going to determine everything. If this Brexit feels badly bungled in terms of people's real lives, not in terms of constitutional settlements, but actually ordinary people start seeing their jobs disappearing, the prices of food rising, other kinds of problems have been associated with the worst kind of Brexit, then it really doesn't matter who's leading the Conservative Party because if it's bungled badly enough, that's game over. That has to be right, doesn't it? And George, what will Brussels be thinking watching this extraordinary drama unfold of the British cabinet unable to make up its mind? Obviously, there's a long-standing sense of bafflement in Brussels about the way that the government's handling this and that two years after the vote, we're still negotiating with ourselves. I think the reaction when the EU and Brussels see the white paper next week will be rather more restrained than possibly people feel in private. Theresa May's been going around Europe. She had a meeting with the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte and the German Chancellor Angela Merkel this week, urging them to give a positive hearing to the white paper when it comes out. And she's been saying to them, look, I'm taking risks here with my personal authority. I'm dragging the party, kicking and screaming towards a more sensible position on Brexit. I can't fight on two fronts. Give me a hearing. Now, the fact is that what she comes up with won't be enough for Brussels. You might argue it never would be, but it won't be. But I suspect it'll be a fairly restrained and sensible response to open the door to more negotiations. So what won't they like about it? Well, for example, on the single market, they'll say on goods, which Theresa May is proposing, they'll say, well, hang on, you can't split up the single market. It's got to cover goods and services. And it comes with free movement and it comes with European Court of Justice jurisdiction to a greater extent than Theresa May envisages. And it comes with money attached. Now, those are all things which will come down the line. And those are the things that people like Boris Johnson will be worried about at Chequers this weekend, knowing that they can move a mile as far as they're concerned, knowing that a few months down the line, the European Commission's going to be asked them to move another mile down the line. And that's the really difficult thing, I think. And Boris Johnson and the Brexiters are not wrong in their analysis about this. You may think they're wrong in their ideology and philosophy and general goals, but their critique of what is wrong with this plan is right. It is only a starting point. It is the giving in more and more. It is the moving further and further away from anything that meaningfully can be described as Brexit.
we cross to the sunny side of the street. There's optimism around about the state of the English nation as we all gear up for Saturday's World Cup match against Sweden. Sunda Katwala, who joins us now, is an expert on British identity and on the nations that make up the UK. Sunda, your piece for the Saturday FT seems to cast Gareth Southgate as a sort of saviour of the nation, or potentially such. It's true, isn't it, that politics does seem to have become more divided and bad-tempered since the Brexit referendum. Is this really a chance for us to kind of heal the nation through football? I think it is. I mean, we're always asking who speaks for England, and the answer mostly is nobody at all. And now we've got Gareth Southgate <laughs> in his very dapper waistcoat and very modestly spoken about what the team wants to achieve, but how for him it's about more than sport. It's something bigger. It's a, a, a nation that has had a sense of identity loss. Maybe they can fix that as well for us. That's an ambitious agenda for him, but also there's the sheer tedium of Brexit as well as its divisiveness. And so things that can bring us together, people enjoyed the Royal Wedding, but the Football World Cup, it brings us together. It's uh, in England that people belong to. It doesn't matter if you're Labour, Conservative or Leave or Remain, you know, or you're in the shire counties, you're in the big cities. We've got something that we share. It's really valued, I think, by people. Jonathan, you've written about the Southgate team and how it's a different sort of England team this time, which kind of reflects the nation better. But also you wrote about the idea of them being decent. I think I won't be offending too many England fans if I say that in the past our kind of image as a nation of football fans has not always been decent slightly dull methodical winners in fact the opposite sometimes losing hooligans is this a moment where we can change our national identity facing outwards as well England fans and England teams in the past you're right have shown a rather unattractive face to the rest of the world fighting fans and teams that in the past have been full of stars lots of bling but not very much success on the field as you say Gareth Southgate does seem to embody a kind of quiet decency that in the past was always associated with a certain kind of Englishness. It was typical when he dislocated his shoulder jogging outside the team's hotel outside St. Petersburg earlier in the tournament. The first thing he did was apologise to the medical staff for interrupting their day off. So I think there's a feeling abroad that Gareth is a decent sort of bloke and the team he's managing is, and Sunders think tank has polled about this, It's the most diverse team England has ever sent to a major tournament. And there is a sense, Sunder, isn't there, that the country sees itself reflected back in that squad. Yes, we've asked the question, you know, does the England team bring people together, belong to people of every faith and ethnicity? The ethnic majority say yes to that, three-quarters of them. The ethnic minority say yes to that, three-quarters of them. And you don't find anything else in England that's quite got those values yet. The flag has got a majority of ethnic minorities and of the majority, but it's a narrower majority. We're not quite as sure about it when the football isn't on. So these summers are really important. They change our sense of national identity. In 1990, when Gaza cried, football went mainstream and, you know, in Italy, and that was a sort of thing the middle class could do, not just some sort of very sort of aggressive working class thing. In 1996, we did change Englishness very dramatically by the song Football Coming Home, which said it's not about we're going to win because we're better than you because we're the best country in the world. It's like we never quite win, but we never stop hoping that we'll win. It was about the fans' experience and the shared memory. So actually, we really sorted Englishness out. I remember I was 22 at the time. I felt this country change and that the England we had at football was very, very inclusive. We then didn't take it beyond sport. So I think this is the big risk, that if you have an ideal of a national identity, the French did it in 1998 as well, that is the country you'd like to be. 
and you see it on the football field for a fortnight. But you then don't do any work to make the country that you want to be reflect the country that you actually are. Then it will, I think, evaporate and disappear. So I think we're going to put too much pressure on Gareth Southgate if we don't get up and help him out and have our politicians actually give Englishness some presence when there isn't a sporting tournament on. Because your argument is, Sunder, if I'm right, that actually a lot of the Brexit referendum was to do with forgetting a need for national identity in England itself, that Scotland is secure in its sense of itself as a nation to want to stay in the EU, as it were, but for the kind of insecure English who wanted to be English more than they wanted to be British, leaving Europe was a way to kind of define that Englishness against Europeanism. And so we need to kind of reclaim English patriotism in order to be an open participant in relationships with other nations. Is that right? Have I got your argument right? Englishness has been growing a great deal um, since the 1990s, which is when the English started to realise that being English and British weren't exactly the same thing, which the Scots had always been trying to say. With devolution, you realise that. And then there's this great asymmetry. You have devolution for the other nations, but you're sort of saying to England, well, you're too big, you're too ugly, it will dominate everything. You can't really have anything anyway. You're British, aren't you? Therefore, because it wasn't shaped at all, actually, it was an unspoken drive, a very important drive of the Brexit vote that if you felt much more English than British you were much more Brexit and if you feel more British than English then you're very likely you live in London you've got a university degree or you're from an ethnic minority background and that sense that it polarises as it does it becomes a reason for liberals to say well I don't want to go there then bring Britishness back but that is exactly the mistake because you haven't shaped it and you know Scottish national identity has been enormously shaped I think by the efforts of Scottish unionists and Scottish nationalists say if we're going to talk about Scotland it will have to be an inclusive civic version and there's been real leadership into that Englishness has just been left so it sort of sours and festers at the fringes and then it has a sporting identity there are no institutions you have a lot of things where you create you know a Scottish national theatre and then the national theatre doesn't think about England at all. There's no English dimension of any of our institutions. There's no place to have the debate about our English needs or values or interests different from Britain. John Denham gave a very powerful speech about this, hosted by the Speaker of the House of Commons, saying there's no crucible, there's no place for the debate. We have to create the place for the debate instead of saying, do we already know the answer? Jonathan, what do you think about this, the idea that Englishness has been sort of left to fester as a sort of ignored resentment rather than being something positive, and this idea that we all need now to try and find ways that the flag of St George is something that belongs to us all. You can be British and English but value your Englishness. I think that's absolutely right and I would just remind listeners that the last attempt by a British politician to articulate national identity was Gordon Brown's attempt in the 2000s. It was to articulate not an English identity but a British civic identity so as Sunda says Englishness remains ignored and I think he's absolutely right to talk about institutions because the crisis of Englishness is not just a crisis of identity, although it is that. It's also a crisis of political representation. Yes. We have devolved assemblies in Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland. There's nothing comparable in England. There's no English Parliament. Now, some politicians, and I'm thinking of Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester, see the city regions as places where you could begin to create or fill in the gap where political representation for England should be. Um, Of course, as Sunder hinted at, there are all sorts of worries about asymmetrical federation in this country. But there clearly is a problem, and it's got to be tackled both at the institutional and at the cultural level.
In fact, Sadiq Khan, the Mayor of London, was saying something very similar to what Andy Burnham's been saying when I spoke to him this Tuesday for an FT event. And all of the new city region mayors do seem to have got this message that the democratic deficit that's felt in England powered the vote to leave in the Brexit referendum and that they have a role in trying to fix this and trying to make new connections with regional populations. So have they got enough powers to do that? They need to grow their powers as city regions. But I think one of the dangers is, and this was part of I think, Gordon Brown's vision, which had many merits, but he had an idea of nations and regions. And I think Scotland and Wales were nations and England was regions. If that's what England wants, that's fine. But you've got to create the space where you decide what England wants. And there might be a different view in the southeast of England than in the northeast and in the northwest. And you might want something quite messy and patchwork that actually reflects people's identity, reflects different needs and interests. But you've got to have somewhere where that debate takes place. So I think it is this problem that John Denham identifies that, you know, you create a Scottish and a Welsh manifesto, but you have no English manifesto or discussion about that in the Conservative Party or Labour Party. So the political attention remains very, very, very shallow and perfunctory. I mean, we saw ministers flying the St George's flag from the third game onwards because the Sun campaigned for it. You've got the Labour Party saying there'll be bank holidays for Saints Days and an extra bank holiday if we win the World Cup, but no sustained engagement. And it's true that people are going to struggle to get to these constitutional questions because we haven't been having the conversation. I mean, Scottish devolution arises out of a 20-year conversation. You've got to have a civic political debate about what England wants, what are the trade-offs, how would power shift away from London if we made this choice or another choice, and let it take time to percolate, but be very clear that England gets to decide what it wants in the Union, and then to negotiate what Britain is with everybody else as well. And then in the meantime, it becomes rather tortured, doesn't it? I'm thinking of Ed Miliband being kind of bullied into saying that he was furious with Emily Thornbury for seeming to ridicule people for flying the St George's flag at the same time that as various very serious thinking figures in the Labour Party, like John Denham, who you've mentioned already, are making reinventing patriotism their kind of life's work. Jonathan, there's a real conflict in the Labour Party, isn't there, about this? Well, I don't think we should be too unfair on Ed Miliband. If you remember, I think Ed Miliband, to his credit, got the problem of England quite early. If you remember, he attracted around him Labour thinkers like the MP John Crudus and the founder of the Blue Labour tendency, Morris Glassman, who recognised the problem of English representation and English identity very early. Of course, he failed. Ed Miliband failed to articulate that properly. Just to pick up on something that Sunder was just saying, and without wanting to invest too much hope in Gareth and his boys. Oh, go on. What Southgate has managed is something quite extraordinary, which is to get the whole country to see itself reflected back in, as I said earlier. In recent years, and I think Sunder would agree with this, the fans the England team has just attracted have been, and you see this in the club names on the flags that England fans take to games outside the country, they tend to be clubs from the provinces, not from the big cities, but from places like Peterborough, places on the East Coast, places, very importantly, which voted overwhelmingly for Brexit. But Southgate's England is a team that seems to appeal simultaneously to the eastern post-industrial towns and to the multicultural cities. Of course, a great political challenge is to try and articulate a political identity that has the same broad appeal. It's a wonderful idea, an England where our rifts are healed. I can't wait for this all to become reality. Thank you all very much for joining me. 
Thank you for listening. I'd like also to thank our producers, Anna Dedder and Molly Mintz. I'm Miranda Green, and that was the FT's Politics Podcast. You've been listening to my colleagues Robert Shrimsley, George Parker, Jonathan Derbyshire, and British Futures' Sunda Katwaller. And if you did enjoy listening to this podcast, don't forget to subscribe via all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. Next week, Sebastian Payne, your regular host, will be back from his travels and back in this chair. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.